All right, everybody come in, grab your coffee, grab your drink, grab your dessert, and then grab a seat. If you can find a seat and make it happen. Awesome. Hey, so you guys all made it through the holidays. Congratulations. And into the year 2019. That's honestly no small feat, right? Surviving holidays. It's, it's true. It's something good and something hard, but, you know. Um, last time we got together, I talked about giving yourself the gift of generosity, which was kind of telling yourself more generous stories about yourself, right, as well as telling more generous stories about those around you. It was giving the gift of generosity to yourself about the stories that loop inside your head, the stories you kind of tell yourself, as well as telling more generous stories about other people. And I even referenced being in the car with my boys and being cut off by a driver and one of my boys' friends in the car saying, ooh, I wonder if they're okay. Like, I wonder... Oh, I wonder if everything's all right. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, because like I was pissed off about being cut off and they were like more wrapped up in something could be going on. And so I told that story and I just wanted to let all of you know that I drove across the country to Illinois to celebrate the holidays with my side of the family. And I had to tell a lot of generous stories <laughs> along the way. Like as I was driving, there were a lot of people rushing off to help other people. A lot of people, you know, going off to help other people in serious, serious need. Um, but I was also trying to think of what's happened last since we were together. And of course, the movie Bird Box happened. Bird Box. Any, any takers? Who saw the movie Bird Box? Really? One, two, three, four, five, maybe? Five, six? Okay, seven. It's on Netflix. You can stream it. Sandra Bullock. Different mixed reviews out there. Mixed reviews out there. Like, I watched it with Anne and my parents. And then I just wanted to tell you a funny story um, that happened afterwards because we were also visiting my sister who lives like close to my parents and her family. And she had watched Bird Box. What and then, that? well, it's, it's this crazy story. Yeah, let me, let me give you the quick scene. Something is making people kind of go insane, right? And people are actually hurting themselves and other people. And whatever it is, they end up finding out that this something that makes people hurt themselves has to be viewed physically with your eyes. Like you have to actually see it for it to kind of like enter into you or take you over kind of a thing. So people don't go outside because whatever this is, and this is the part that I didn't like, whatever it is, it obviously can't pass through doors or get inside. You know, you have to open the window kind of let it in or crack the door. But once you're inside, you're pretty much good. So people stay inside, or when they go outside, they wear blindfolds, right? And so my sister tells this story of one of her friends. One of her friend's parents watched the movie and knew that their daughter had watched the movie too. So her parents decided to wear blindfolds and go over to her house. They obviously put them on once they got there. But they put the blindfolds on once they got there and they started banging on her doors and screaming, let us in, let us in, let us in, like it happens in the movies. And then she came to the door and they were both there wearing blindfolds and like screaming and it was pretty funny. It was a good thing. So if you happen to watch the movie, 
I think there are a lot of pranks that could be played revolving this movie, sort of memes in real life that could go down because it could be really, really funny when you start thinking about it. But that's just kind of how my brain works, and I like to entertain those ideas. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention since we got together last time was that I read this article that stated the rings of Saturn are disappearing. Now, do you guys know what clickbait is? Clickbait. Clickbait's that title, that picture, that thing you click on because there's a headline, there's a picture that makes you want to see more. And so I clicked. The rings of Saturn are disappearing. And so I started reading this story written by some person who's in that field, obviously. And they simply stated, you know, that like scientists had once predicted that the rings of Saturn would disappear in 300 million years. That's what they said. And they said, but after observation, recent observation, scientists have noticed that the ring rain, which is like the rings raining down on Saturn, the rings are falling apart and creating this rain, the ring rate has accelerated, and now the rings will be disappearing much earlier than had been previously predicted. And so I'm reading the article, still interested, still interested. And then it said, so now the new prediction is that the rings of Saturn will disappear in 200 million years instead of 300 million years, which honestly is a pretty big difference, right? I mean, that's a pretty big difference. And I told this story to Anne, and she was like, so what, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, if you guys were reading that, maybe you, I kind of felt that way when I got to that part. But then this article had this twist, and that's why I'm even mentioning this to you tonight. The person writing the article then said, so count yourself lucky that you were born and alive and existed during a time when the rings of Saturn were visible to you because it's truly an extraordinary thing that won't be around forever, right? Now, some of you are still like, still, you know, like, <laughs> so what? We've seen the rings and so has the rest of humanity, but what's your, you know what I mean? But like the, the spin of gratitude that came at the end of that article shocked me in a way that I just didn't see coming. And I was reminded of MTL. That's why I'm telling you this story, because the story reminded me about how here we're trying to slow down and we're trying to remember once again that life is truly a gift, a miraculous gift. Like if we will actually stop and witness it and see the good, see the beauty, see the miracle, see the more that there is to life. It's about practicing that kind of gratitude, that kind of generosity with ourselves. So. Anyway, just to get us started, um, we went back to Illinois. We hung out with my parents and my sister's family, and we spent a lot of time there, which means if you're in Illinois and you're hanging out with my parents and my sister's family, you're going to get a lot of quality time. You're going to experience a lot of stories. You're going to experience a lot of memories. Some of those stories were about, like, our sons, actually, and their cousins, things we hadn't heard of. If you want to hear stories that you've never heard of, you get your kids together with their cousins, and you have all the parents in the room, but then you have the cousins start upping one another with stories, and then you hear things you've never heard before, right? Like, this story just comes out on accident, and we're like, whoo, you really did that, huh? 
Okay, like didn't know that one, but all these stories surface. And while we were there, I was just thinking so much about my parents. I started formulating a night like this, and I want to brag on my parents a little bit to you guys, kind of connect that to something really, really positive. So most recently, my dad came out here, and he spent seven weeks here, and he helped me build a garage. Now, this guy's got mad skills. Like, he's a builder. He knows what he's doing, and I have no clue what he's doing or how to do it. Like, and he's that guy. In fact, people from our neighborhood would walk by, and they would just be in awe of our garage, how fast it went up, how good it looked, the way that corners weren't being cut. Like, they were like, what is, who is this guy? Would he build more? No, he's not going to build more garages. <laughs> it's not going to happen. None of you can call him and ask him to build anything. He was 70, and he was standing up on the roof, and I was terrified for my life. That's the honest-to-God truth. But he slept on our couch for seven weeks. He didn't want to take a bed. Like, seven weeks. I can't sleep on a couch for seven weeks. After, like, a week, I'm grumpy, and my neck doesn't work right, and all sorts of things, right? My dad's a pretty generous guy. He's a pretty amazing builder. My mom, probably one of the most significant things to point out about her is, She's beat cancer twice, two different kinds. She's a fighter. She's determined. And in the process, she has changed monumentally. And she's included us in on that journey, my sister and I, which again is inspiring. Like, I often stand in awe of my mother simply because of that alone. Crazy, crazy kind of things. Now, my parents, I do want to tell like a couple of good stories about them because my mom's a worrier, and I was ready, willing, and able to take advantage of that like growing up. I remember this time when we went to St. Louis and we were helping with flooding that was going on, and so we were all near these, uh, what do they call them, the big portions of land that build up levees. The levees were about to overflow, and so we're on top of these levees building them up with sandbags, making them go higher. And while we're there, we're getting this breakdown about like, so here's what happens if the levee breaks. If that should happen, here's what you do. And you climb a tree as fast as you can, and you get as high as you can. Helicopters will be to rescue you soon, you know, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, we're like standing near somewhere, and there's this road that just kind of disappears underneath water. And so I was like grabbing one of my friends. I was like, here, let's, let's walk out in the water a little bit. So we walk out in the water a little bit. We're standing by the edge, you know, just about ankle deep, you know. We wave back to my parents, all that kind of stuff. My mom's really watching me, right? She's like, mama bird. And like, I keep going out deeper and deeper with my friend, and we get to about knee deep. And I tell my friend, I'm like, all right, let's do it. And so we turn, and we're like, hey! We just wave like this. And then at the count of three, I was like, one, two, Three, underneath my breath, we both dropped to our knees. Like something broke or gave way, right? And, we, and suddenly we're like underwater like this, like waving our arms. And my mom freaks out, <laughs> just freaks out. Starts kind of running, and then we stand up, and we're laughing. We're just cracking up. And then the guy who was leading the conversation about here's what to do, he wasn't laughing. Like he didn't think it was very funny. And so he comes up to us, and he says, have you guys had this kind of shot, this kind of shot, and this kind of shot? And we were like, uh, I don't know, why? And he's like, that water's nasty. 
Like, you could have all kinds of stuff after being in there. We were like, oh, okay. And he was like, nobody else go in the water like that, you know? But one other quick story. Ends with me. It's like summers and summers ago at my house. We always had this low kind of power line thing in our backyard. And I can't even remember why we were out there, but my parents were out there. Ann and I were out there. Silas was probably out there playing around, and the other two might not have even existed yet. But we were doing something, and I told Ann, I was like, watch this. Gave her the elbow. And so I was looking over here, and I drew the attention to myself, and my mom starts looking. And then I was like, oh, this wire's so low. And I knew this was like a telephone line, right? This thing has no power in it at all, but my mom doesn't know that. And so like, I just go, oh, I can't stand this thing. And I reach up and I grab it and I go, oh, like this. And I start shaking. And my mom freaked out again. It was awesome. Like, yeah. And I let go and I just start laughing. You know what I mean? My mom's a natural born warrior. And probably the only relief she gets out of those stories is that she passed that genetically onto me. You know? And so now I have sons that torture me and do things just right back. You know. Two of my favorite stories about my dad, man, we were sitting at the dinner table once because we always sat at the dinner table. Every dinner, right? It felt like every dinner. I'm sure we missed some. But me, it felt like every dinner. And we were saying, my sister said something to me, and it made my dad laugh so hard that he actually had milk come out of his nose. And when milk came out of my dad's nose, he started crying and laughing, which then, I mean, when my dad laughs, it's one of those contagious kind of laughs. Like the rest of us just die laughing. And then our phone rings, and it was the old kind connected to the wall, right? And so I'm the first one down there, and I answer the phone, and I'm like, hello, and I'm laughing, and I can't even get out words. And then my sister's like, I'll do it, I'll do it. She gets on, she starts laughing, she can't get through it. My mom tries, she can't do it. And then my dad finally pulls it together and gets on the phone you know, and talks to this poor person who's been like waiting like 10 minutes to speak to a human being that wasn't laughing. But one of my favorite memories was at that dinner table with that experience. One of my other favorite ones is when he took Silas out into the front yard with a metal detector. And my dad had littered the front yard with coins that he could find. And so we go out there and he's like, hey, Silas, let's go out and use the metal detector. See if we can find any treasures. And Silas is like, yeah, let's do it. And so they go out there and they just find like 30 bucks, you know, like in quarters, nickels, and dimes, like all over the place. And then it was, he was kind of busted the next day when Silas woke up right away and was like, let's go out there again. Let's do this again. Or let's try the backyard. My dad was like, well, I don't know if we'll be as lucky, you know. But my dad, like, his kind of playful spirit is like very memorable for me. Very memorable for me growing up. Now, I tell you those stories not to like upstage your parents, right? I realized that none of us had ideal parents, situations. It didn't all shake down like that, you know? I'm telling you this story because I want you to get a good picture of who my parents are. I want you to kind of get a little inner glimpse into the workings of Philip and Judy Gallagher. Those are my parents. And I'm going to actually read something now because I want you to get even just a better glimpse of how I see my parents, right? So I'm going to read something to you, and then I'm also going to play something for you to watch on this television. And you might have heard this before, 
But this is what screams my mom and dad for me. At the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, Derek Redmond was entered in the 400-meter dash representing Great Britain. In his semi-final heat, he needed to finish in the top four to advance to the final. With less than 200 meters to go, he was in a great position to earn a spot in the Olympic final. Then his right hamstring popped, and he dropped to the track in agony and sat there for a few tortured moments, but then he got back up. To the amazement of the crowd in the stadium and millions watching around the world on television, here's what happened. My favorite parts in that video were the people coming up, obviously telling his dad that he couldn't be down there, <laughs> that he couldn't be doing what he was, and he just waved him off. He pushed the first guy. It's like, this is my kid, and he's in pain, and I'm going to be there for him and help him. People even like said that a few of the conversation pieces that went on was his son saying, you don't have to do this. And he said, yes, I do. And he walked with him across the finish line. That's how I view my parents. It's the heart of my parents in that video that I connect to, that I resonate with. Sometimes I've spoken about having the heartbeat of the divine like something inside of you that beats, that pulses the blood through your veins, that makes you kind of run. The engine, the heart kind of behind it all. That's what I feel about my parents. Now, I wanted to ask you guys, I feel like you've probably got some good insight on this. Did I drop my glasses? Does anybody see them? They're gone, right? Oh, there they are. Woof. Found them. All right, so here's what I want to know. I was going to ask this question, and if you guys can just be thinking in your minds, if you get anything for me to write up on here, let me know. I want to know what the ingredients of a good relationship are. From marriage to dating to friendships to all of it, what are the good ingredients that make a good relationship? Something maybe you've experienced, something maybe you hope to experience, maybe it's something you're always on the lookout for when you think of a friend. Maybe it's something you feel like you need to express more of and demonstrate more of, but what are the ingredients of a good, good relationship? Silas. Trust. Trust. I like it. Loyalty. Golden rule. Golden rule. I'm just going to put gold rule. We all know. Laughter. Laughter. Nice. Connection. Connection. What was that? Sharing. Sharing. Honesty. Honesty. Understanding. Communication. Understanding. Nice. You guys can keep shouting them out. I'm good. Attentive. Attentive. Attraction, but that, that's not meant to be a, the, the physical attraction. Right. Where something that attracts another. Yeah. Mutual attraction. Oof. Support. Support. What'd you say? Oh. <laughs> Generosity. Kindness. Kindness. Dang. Patience. Patience. Ooh. I was on a roll with my spelling until there. 
right? I'm doing a good job, Love. right? Love. Oh, yeah. It's a really good one. Thanks, Kay. All right, so we've got some ingredients. We could probably fill the board up with a whole lot more. We're going to come back to this, though. We're going to come back to this. I want to get back to my parents for a second, because I feel like they've passed so much on to me and my sister. It was not too many talks ago that we talked about something. Um, it was called like hand-me-downs. This idea that like so much of who we are, this like cocktail mixture of me, has been given to me from bits and pieces of people and has been combined and has helped make me who I am. And I talked about some stories like my dad and his generosity is one of the things I talked about. Like the way that he is so giving towards people spilled over onto my life. That night I didn't mention my mom. One of the things that my mom handed down to me that's really positive is the fact that like she studies and reads and loves to learn more. Like I grew up watching her tear the Bible apart. This is like a book that really matters to her so deeply that like she studies it and she doesn't just study it, she starts studying words and like finding other things to piece together and she asks questions and she imagined herself in the story and then asks more questions. She would just dig deeper and deeper and I swear if my mom didn't have that pulsing through her, if I didn't witness that growing up, I don't think I would be the like relentless inquisitive person that I am who reads and tries to get below the surface with things. Lots of things are handed down and for my sister and myself, I think perhaps the most important thing that was handed down to us was the demonstration of love from my parents and their relationship between themselves and us as kids, as their children. They taught me about a love that endures and fights, a love that's consistent and unconditional and often over the top, a love that's compelled to action and is present through even some of the most difficult times. A love that's both strong and fierce, as well as gentle and tender at the same time. Now, my dad has lots of stories about the Navy, because he was in it. And when you put a bunch of guys on an aircraft carrier, you wind up with a lot of stories, right? One of the stories, though, that isn't quite so funny that he always used to tell me was, being a part of the Navy, he was expected to know how to sew and mend his own clothes. It was understood that your clothes were going to wear out and you had to fix them. He tells me stories of them mending their socks. And he said what they would do is when they got a hole in their sock, they would take a light bulb and they would put it down into the sock so they could better work with it. And then they would stitch up their sock or put a patch over it. And that story to me feels so out of date. <laughs> I don't know how to say sew to save my life. I mean, I took home ec in middle school and we used a sewing machine. That was pretty cool. I don't think I could ever do it again because I don't know how to thread the bobbin or whatever it is. Like, it's impossible to use in my book. And when we get holes in our socks, what do we do? We throw them away and we buy new ones. Thank you for making my point so clear. Now, I want to tell you another story. When I was a kid, I used to buy Transformers. Transformers, thank God, were these like really cool robots that turned into cars and planes and trucks and things. And they morphed and they moved, and they came with instruction manuals. 
bonus. Because all of us would have been lost if they didn't. They came with these instruction manuals, and we would like fight to do these things, and you would bend things the wrong way, but eventually you got there, and it was all okay. Fast forward to my boys wanting transformers and buying them, and the same thing happened. They came with the manuals, and we fought to make these work, but something else happened when we twisted and turned these newer, more modern transformers. They broke a lot because they were made of plastic instead of some of the metal ones that I used to have. They were more sturdy and stronger. They just didn't last. They couldn't measure up. Now, here we are today. You guys answered that you just throw away your socks and you just buy new ones. We make jokes about how things that are made are literally made to break. So you have to come back and you have to buy more. And I remember Anna and myself taking something in to get repaired, and the guy literally said, it would be more expensive for you to fix this than it would to simply throw this thing away and buy a new one. And that's probably true. But what it does to us is kind of makes us a throwaway society. And we all just kind of think, ah, I'll just throw those away and I'll get a new one. Most things we don't fix or repair, we simply replace. That's kind of become more normal. I started thinking about that, and I wondered how much that view has possibly shaped more of our lives and pervaded more of our culture than we often tend to think or recognize. How has our perspective possibly shifted? So think about it. The idea that we can simply get a new one or get rid of something that doesn't work, could it have changed the way that we love people? Could it have changed the way in which we view relationships? From marriage to dating to friendships. Could the effort we put toward and into one another be different because of what we expect concerning relationships in a throwaway society? Perhaps we cut people loose when we feel, th when we feel threatened. Perhaps we do that more than we need to do. Perhaps we resist or even throw away relationships that could actually lead to somewhere deeper and a better connection. Now, I know some of you are thinking there, you're playing devil's advocate, you're doing what I do, and you're thinking of the exceptions. That's what you're doing. A few of you out there, at least. I just want you to know that we all know there are certain relationships that just can't continue. Relationships that need to be over. Abusive, toxic relationships that just need to come to an end. We're not talking about those tonight. We're talking about some of these other ones that we tend to cut loose because we feel threatened or we resist and even get rid of that relationship. And there could have been something deeper there. There could have been something more. So here's the deal. Why am I talking about my parents? Because the example that my parents handed me is primarily my starting point for the way in which I demonstrate and offer and give love to other people. They loved each other, and they loved my sister and myself. And so now, I love other people. I think we all need stories to kind of ground ourselves and root ourselves. And when I went back to visit my parents and I was kind of confronted with this entire idea, I was like, man, this is a crazy story for me. It's like been a very grounding, rooting, and centering thing in my life. This kind of exemplary story of a love that just doesn't quit. 
Last Saturday, my parents celebrated their 49th anniversary. And I thought, dang, <laughs> like that's a long time, guys. Like, wow, how incredibly crazy is that? And then I started asking my questions. Well, was it always good? No. What is, what is it always pretty? Definitely not. Is it perfect now? Not even close, right? There's this phrase that I try to sneak into all of my weddings now. I try, I've built it into like every script. It's like on copy and paste sitting over here and then I just plop it into every wedding that I do. And I feel like it says a lot about the truth of love. So I wanted to share with you tonight. Here's, here's, it goes a little something like this. Today, my encouragement to both of you is to tell a compelling story with your lives. To tell the story of love that we desperately need to hear nowadays. That love is in fact resilient and more powerful than we can possibly imagine. I think we need to see that love pulsating through one another. I think we need to see it in and through you, expressed in the relationships that you have, the relationships that you nurture, the relationships that you cultivate. We need to see how that love runs deep in your veins and is the rhythm of your beating heart. And so I want to encourage you in two modes of operation tonight to kind of like exhibit that love and kind of take it and run with it. The first one's called the off switch. And this is all about action, right? This first one's about action, and it's called the off switch. But what I'm talking about here is acting out of love instead of acting out of fear. And see, the, the reason this works, though, if you like act out of love instead of fear, is because of how your brain functions. So you've got a brain that, when it feels threatened or under attack, your brain's primary purpose becomes protection. And it actually shuts off rational, logical thinking in order to protect you <laughs> at all costs. So oftentimes when you get into a disagreement, an argument, something that's frustrating, if you feel threatened, if you feel under attack with whoever it is in front of you, your brain mode switches to protection. That's what it goes to. So what I'm saying is, you have other parts of your brain as well. And you actually have these logical, loving parts of your brain that aren't about protection and survival. And literally, when you turn that side on, it shuts off the other side. And so what happens is, if you find yourself in a position where you do feel threatened, you feel under attack, you're kind of like, you feel irrationality taking over in a relationship. What you can do, instead of getting angry and irrational, is choose to act in love. To take action in a compassionate way that literally turns off the part of your brain that's very willing to keep you spiraling around in your brain in thoughts and horrible narratives. And keep kind of the two of you, whoever you and that other person is, kind of in this horrible vortex, right? Here's the tricky part of this whole thing. The off switch, someone has to turn it off. One person in this relationship has to take action, move toward the other, act in love, and flip those switches. That's one mode of operation, and that's all about taking action. It's never easy to do. 
in Anne and Maya's relationship, she almost always is that first person, which means she's bigger. Right? Like, you're there. It's so damn hard <laughs> to take action and to literally say, I'm not willing to stay in this place. This place sucks. It hurts. It's no good. Oftentimes, what we do in that place is we give up, we throw in a towel, we walk away, we cut someone loose. That's what we tend to do. I'm encouraging you to flip the switch off, act in love, step of compassion, whatever that might be. And it's going to be different for every relationship, right? Second mode of operation is to give the benefit of the doubt. And this isn't about taking action. This is about reaction, right? We all know that like, you can get an email from a person, and it has no tone to it has no facial gestures accompanying it. And you can read that email however you want to. There's a starting place at which you begin to read that email. I'm encouraging you in the relationships that you have to begin at a place that gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. If you think that email is going to be piss, pissy and like no good, Slap your smile on and read that sucker out loud with the bounciest, most positive voice you can and see what happens. You know what I'm saying? That's what we're talking about here, the reaction mode of giving someone the benefit of the doubt. I was home in Illinois, and there was this morning that Ann woke up, and she went off to exercise, and I'm at home, and I get this text from my sister. And it says, hey, do you want to do lunch today, just the two of us? Question mark. I don't know. We've never done lunch together before like this. Is she upset? She's probably mad about something. Something's probably occurred, and this lunch is going to be really hard. This is where my brain is going here. We've never done this before. Like, something. She's, oof. And I mean, I went with it, you know? To where, like, literally, I was in a funk the rest of the day. I even went to the lunch. And nothing bad, guys. Like, my sister wanted some time alone with me. She was, like, actually taking a step, like, at furthering our relationship. And we just sat and talked and connected, and it was great. But, man, the two hours leading up to that thing were almost unbearable for me. I wish I could have started at a different point with my sister. I wish I could have given her the benefit of the doubt that said, oh, it's my sister. She just wants time with me. She just wants to connect. We're just getting together. Like, we didn't get any time to spend together or talk, and we're going to do it now. That's going to be incredible. Reaction from other people, the relationships in your life, whoever those people might be, trying to check yourself and correct yourself and say, hey, 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 where am I starting right now with this person based on the look they threw me, the text they sent me, the comment they made, whatever it is, go back to that starting point. Give them the benefit of the doubt, please. Give them the benefit of the doubt. This might actually be something that enables you to go deeper with one another in your relationship. Oi, oi, oi. I think that we tend to forget the relationships 
get better over time. The majority of them. Some of you are thinking about the exceptions to the rule. That's OK. Let's think about the non-exceptions to the rule. Relationships take time. It's Malcolm Gladwell, right, in his book, The Tipping Point, maybe? I can't remember which book it was now. When he talked about mastering something, 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours need to be spent toward outliers. Outliers, thank you. Need to be spent toward something in order to make you a master of it. 10,000 hours of trust, loyalty, laughter, the golden rule, sharing, communication, generosity, honesty, goodness, kindness, love, forgiveness. Who in the room has spent 10,000 hours of forgiveness? Oh my God, yeah, my son raised his hand. <laughs> That's a good one, man. 10,000 hours making you a master at love and relationships. None of us are there. We're not quite there yet. We've got some work to do. We can like change our modes of operation. And even though like I look at this list and I see this thing, like I think that's a lot of time. And apparently some of these ingredients, it can't just be smooth sailing either to create a good relationship. There have to be obstacles and disagreements. If you're gonna practice forgiveness, you gotta have something to forgive, right? We gotta talk about trust, we gotta talk about patience. Like a lot of these things are good and ugly at the same time. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. So when the obstacles and frustrations come, and they most certainly will, don't be the person to cut and run. Don't be the person to throw in the towel. Just because you know it might cost more to stick it out, and it could be less expensive, to go find a new one, don't do it. Don't do it. Relationships are hard and they're messy. In our throwaway culture, sometimes we tend to cut and run too quickly. We tend to throw in the towel too fast. My parents, their years of experience, their years of disagreements, the blood, the sweat, the tears, I feel like it's kind of made them masters of love. Like, you might look at them and think otherwise, who knows? <laughs> Like, I love watching them disagree nowadays because, like, at some point you just disagree and it's like, whatever, you know? Like, but I love it. I feel like they're masters at that. I've watched their lives and they've always been active in church. Always. I'm like saying, like, always. When I was a kid growing up, church felt like a part time job and, like, none of us were working. You know what I'm saying? So, like, they've always been active in church. I still remember, like, for the majority of, like, my adolescence, they volunteered or ran without being paid the youth groups that I was a part of. They did that. They did it for other people, and they also did it for my sister and I, you know? It was like both and at the same time. And even now, they're in the early stages of retirement, and guess what they're thinking about doing? Going on staff at their church. Initially, not being paid at all. What are they gonna do? They're gonna meet with people, they're going to talk with people. They're going to pray with people. They're going to visit people that are sick. This is like what they're going to do. It's kind of their legacy. It's who they are. It's how their heart beats. And what I love is that it continues on in me and my sister and so many of the other relationships that they have in their life where they've taught and demonstrated that kind of love. One last story to wrap it up tonight. When Lincoln was just a little guy, he could barely talk. 
we went to cut down a Christmas tree because we do it annually. We go out to the woods, we tromp around, we try to find that tree, which some years takes a lot more time. Not gonna lie. This year it was pretty fast, which I was ever grateful for. But this particular year, we were out there for quite a while with another family. We were driving back because we went out to Kremling this year, and we were just past Kremling, I should say, because then we come back to Kremling and we tried to find a place to eat. And we stumbled into this restaurant, like we didn't really know what it was. And Ann was off somewhere getting some food, and I had the boys, and Silas was sitting down, and I was strapping Lincoln into this high chair. And as I was strapping him into the high chair, he goes, Dad, look, it's you. And I was like, yep, it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we play those hide-and-go-seek games. I'm not sure what's happening here. But then he points, and he goes, Dad, look, it's you. And I turn around, and on the wall is a picture of Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and he's pointing right at the poster, I swear to God. And it's the picture of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston when he did this crazy knockout, right? First round. And to be more specific, it was one minute and 44 seconds. He connected with Sonny Liston's jaw, and the guy went down. It's this picture of Muhammad Ali standing over him. And it's, pretty, it's a pretty great picture. So for me, like, I look at the picture, and I'm like, Lincoln's very confused. But <laughs> at the same time, I'm really flattered, right? Because, like, I mean, come on. I mean, I feel like he couldn't have been more wrong and right at the same time, right? That's how I took it. But metaphorically speaking, like, symbolically speaking, I feel like my parents gave me this kind of crazy fighter heart. So I like to think that what Lincoln was talking about that day was the heart inside of me. He actually could see, sense, or feel the heart that I carry, the heart that I wear on my sleeve, the heart my parents passed on to me that beats in sync with the divine, a heart that fights for love and views relationships differently. They're not something to throw away or something to get rid of. They might just need some fixing and a little bit of repair, a heart inside of me that acts in love when it's threatened, a heart that sees the potential in all things to grow closer and honestly looks for the good when pretty much all you can see is the bad, but hunts, searches, looks for the good. So with that said, until next time, may your heart grow bigger. May your heart take action and turn the switch off, allowing love to win in your relationships. May you react by giving the benefit of the doubt and use that as a starting place with the people that you have relationships with. May you put in the effort and the time to become a master at love and the relationships that are around you. May your heart sink with the heartbeat of the divine. Amen. All right, there you guys go. That's the first MTL of 2019. I had to brag on my parents a little bit and encourage you guys in your relationships. We'll be here again, not next week, but the week after. 